Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Knox, how you doing today? Great. I'm uh, so glad to see you. We just recorded earlier this week, but yeah, I'm it's been glad like five days, but glad to see you again. <laughs> yeah, just trying to stay on schedule here with the uh, Come Follow Me schedule. You know, some of y'all like to have the stuff a week in advance so that you can be ready for your next Sunday school class, and we are happy to be here to uh, discuss that stuff. I'm still very excited to be discussing the Book of Mormon, but before we obviously get into the Come Follow Me, uh, we're going to have to discuss some news. And we're not going to say too much about it because both of these things are still pending, but uh, they are out there and they're very loud, so we feel like we should at least mention them. Uh, The first one that is worth mentioning is the likely split of the United Methodist Church. Derek, what are the details here? So, back in the United Methodist Church's General Conference last year, the traditionalists prevailed in some of their uh, measures, and which caused a great cry throughout the United Methodist Church among those who are more progressive. And as a result, what happened is a... a, a mediation team got together people parties from all sides and, and tried to figure out a plan and the plan that they have proposed is to have a split and the the uh, the representatives from all sides both the the, the pro LGBTs and the traditionalists as they call themselves uh, I would have a different name for them mm. but but they they've decided to split and they all parties on all sides agree and this is to me this seems a little bit like a divorce it's it's not a win because uh-huh. the win would everyone would be just be pro gay they're kind of painting it that way though but it is a, like a divorce in the sense of if you've just got this awful situation and you can't live together anymore it might be better for all parties involved to split up right and that seems to be what they're going to do which needs to be approved by next year's this this coming year's uh, general conference mm-hmm. and what that means is and part of what they did is very interesting is that they're allowing the traditionalists to separate and also giving them some money so that they can start a new denomination because the way it's been living trying to coexist is almost impossible and LGBTs are at the uh, kind of like the kids in the divorce are the the ones that are getting the worst worst of it because the way it is now um clergy are not allowed to have to perform same gender weddings clergy are not allowed to be openly lgbt and partnered although that some people are finding uh depending on the region that they're in uh they're getting away with it and and getting a lot of support especially in liberal regions So this leads to a very difficult situation where you've got an impasse and neither one is willing to compromise. And so the split is a relief for some and a tragedy for some. And a lot of my United Methodist friends are really going through a lot right now. Um, I get to me, I think overall it's a good thing, right, because now you'll be able to have a Methodist denomination that can openly be pro-marriage equality because it's really the only mainline Protestant denomination uh, that still d- isn't pro-marriage equality. The and it's one of the biggest ones, too. It is. It, it is the third largest denomination of any kind 
in the United States. You've got first, obviously, the Roman Catholics, right. then the Southern Baptists, then the United Methodist Church, and then fourth is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. So they're, they're, they're pretty big, pretty influential. And, but here's one of the things I was thinking about. Yes, they might split, but in the, in the conservative break-off group, they're still going to have gay kids. They're right. still going to have LGBT kids born among them. Right. And that's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. There's a sense in which if you would have preserved them in the United Methodist Church, they would have all become progressive together eventually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But that's a gamble of time because who who's going to get caught in the in the meat grinder along the way growing up in, a, in an environment that doesn't affirm them? Right. But at least the kids that grow up in the conservative break-off group when they become adults, they'll have the the other United Methodists to go, which, which aren't really united anymore. That's kind of a very interesting name. They're going to hold on to that name then. Yes. Okay. So it looks like I, I'm assuming they are, um, and but it allows a generous way of if congregations or clergy need to leave, then they can leave within a certain time. And by default, any congregations that don't leave will remain with the United Methodist Church. Okay. Um. They also there also was a provision for thirty nine million dollars to be put towards those who have been marginalized by the sin of racism, and I think that's important because people of color, whichever Methodist group they end up in, um, will need will need to be taken care of and make sure that they have the resources to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And that uh, what what were your reactions to this? You know, I didn't know what to think because on the one hand, I- if I was part of that community, my immediate response would have been all right, like, all right, great. The traditionalists can go over here the and the progressives can go over here where we can just believe as we want without any, um, you know, without any problems, you know. And, you know, that's the way I feel about, as you said, a divorce. Like if you come to an impasse and there doesn't seem to be a positive way to remain together, and be able to flourish together, then a split seems the most logical, um, the most logical decision. And I, I, I'm trying not to view the split as so much a failure of the church, so much as I view it as a uh, almost like a graduation. Like I, I want there to, like they 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 realize they can no longer grow together, they can no longer be together. And now this seems to be the best way forward. So p- perhaps I should I should be a little bit sadder about this thing. I don't I don't know. Like 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 you said, the LGBTQ folks are kind of like the kids caught in the middle of this divorce. But at the same time, it seems to be best for everybody. And I want to uh, at least take some solace in the fact that this is the best way forward for that church. And mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know a number of queer clergy in the United Methodist Church. And I'm not going to go ask them for their reaction right now because that's not the right thing to do. Uh-huh. And in fact, you do too. You know, Jay Williams at Union. Right. Um, he posted on oh, on his Facebook that uh, like his dad called him and said, well, did you hear about this? And he said, yes, I heard about it. <laughs> and he probably doesn't want to talk about it right now. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, he's a he's a he's a great pastor. I think that we could learn a lot from him. Shouts I think let's Jay. talk about what we can learn from from this in terms of the LDS world. 
Yeah, because the interesting thing about this is that, uh, I mean, obviously in the LDS church, our power is very centralized. And right. uh, something like that isn't really, for lack of a better word, capable of happening, quote unquote. But at the same time, I feel like there's something here for our, us to learn. I Yeah, I think there is something for us to learn. I think structurally it's very different because um, in part because, yeah, it's just very structurally different. You wouldn't be able to to negotiate a settlement like that, I think, with the LDS church to, right. to you know, go and take buildings with you and take money with you and take clergy with you. And, uh-huh. and uh, I don't, just don't think that would happen. Mm-hmm. But I think the importance of getting this right and doing whatever, doing the right thing no matter what the cost is, is quite important because what really gets happened is that LGBTs get sacrificed on the altar of false unity uh-huh. because for so long Methodists prioritized the unity of the church. And what they meant by that is the external like structural unity, not the actual internal like we're of one mind unity because they right. didn't even have that. Right. Even though they're called United Methodists. Um, they and there are a lot of moderates or or people who 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 wanted to hold the church together, knowing that it was holding the careers of queer clergy hostage because mm-hmm. they couldn't progress in the church. And they're like, "Well, just let's keep the church together." I'm like, "You're choosing your comfort and your idealized perfect view." Which actually happens in certain marriages too, right? Some people mm-hmm. will want to hold out. Well, let's just stay married um, because of what it looks like, mm-hmm. and hold this idealized obligation in there over the lives of people who will be affected right. negatively right. by the by that ongoing problem. And so, I think that's something that we need to learn is to count the cost and 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 figure out well, what do we have to do? And even if it it makes us uncomfortable, even if there's some tragic bumps in the yeah. road. We still have to do the right thing and push towards the full equality of my people. Mm-hmm. Counting the cost is scary for people who don't sit on those margins. Because yeah. once they realize what they have to do and the discomfort they're going to experience, uh, that kind of changes the game. And we're actually going to see that when we move into the Come Follow Me and talk mm-hmm. about uh, Lehi's family. But... Um, yeah, I just that really resonated with me about how how necessary but scary counting the cost of change and progress is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, anything else to say about? Nope, not right now. All right, excellent. Yeah. This is still a developing story. The split isn't official, but the separation agreement has been agreed upon, and uh, you know we'll see in the coming I don't know days, weeks, months when the split actually happens. What uh, you know what other consequences are faced and experienced by the United Methodist Church. I just want to pause or, or now I thought of something Okay, is um, most of the denominations in the United States in the 19th century split over slavery. You had a Northern and a Southern version um, and the Presbyterians got together uh, in the 1960s. The United Methodists got together that's why they're called United Methodists. They're they're merged. So, I think what's what's really significant is when churches decide to split, and we haven't had big splits like this except over 
um, well, slavery, and then... I mean, Joseph Smith's successor was kind of a big deal, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm talking about, in like, in the Protestant world. Oh, in the Protestant yeah, world. Yeah, we okay. haven't had major splits like this uh, since... Well, I don't... I can't think of... Well... Yeah, I, I think it's what's interesting is when people try th – that's the heart of it is some people decided to take a stand and say, no, standing up for the dignity of all people is more important than staying in a relationship with you. Uh -huh. That Once you get to that point, you know something is really serious uh -huh. for, for those people. Right. And I think that's kind of, kind of where w the, the place we are here. Um, and and I think what what's more what, likely what, what you mean here are you talking about still in with the Protestant LGBTs, world or yeah in, in the, the Protestant world okay I guess. got you now in the LDS world I think what's more likely to happen is people who become disaffected with the the current status quo they'll just leave they'll leave the church uh -huh. I think that's more likely to happen than for them to organize a new breakaway church and try right. to get that like right. I um. Yeah. So I'm just thinking out loud. I don't really have all the answers, but I'm just thinking this is really significant. If the United Methodists are willing to split over this, mm -hmm. there is some solid um, passion really on both sides. Right. And right. people willing to take a stand for what they believe in and say this is a big enough deal that we have to address it. Uh-huh. I think that's kind of what we can learn from in this church that, that this issue is not going away until we get it right, mm -hmm. and uh, and the rest of our country is is progressing and shifting, you know, two steps forward and one back. But eventually, if our church does not change our position, well, it already is uh, um, sort of a laughing stock among the enlightened world, mm -hmm. right? Um, we're not going to want to be known as the homophobic church. <laughs> Even though that's kind of been our brand for the last, you know, decade or yeah, two. Yeah, it's going to become, uh, y you know how people now don't want to be called racist? Mm -hmm. Which is different than they don't want to be racist because there are a lot of people more worried about whether being they're... Being called racist yeah, and actually being, being racist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're more worried about being called racist or being seen as racist than actually the impact on people of color right and i think that's the case here is is people are we're going to get to the point where we're no longer going to be wanting to see, be seen as homophobes so if the church assuming we get to this point where a significant constituent of members of the church get to this point where we don't want to be part of a homophobic religion do you think we're just going to get to a point where a bunch of people just leave and then maybe there's like this mass uh resignation crisis or do you think there's a lot of people who are going to feel that way and stay and maybe that'll be the uh the impetus for change what do you how, how do you think that's going to look i think that there's there will be a lot of people who leave but there will be a lot of people who stay uh -huh. and um i'm a believer and i know that the lord is leading this church so it's not like the lord isn't seeing where this is going the lord will i think is already trying to to do a good job of infusing a new spirit into the church, right. line upon line, and eventually, right when we need a new revelation, um, well, we already need it, but 
You know what I mean? There, it's yeah. not like we'll be lost forever. God's God's uh, God's on our side and mm-hmm. is going to powerfully move the leaders and members of this church in a miraculous way in the near future. Right. And that's kind of why I'm not worried about the situation of, well, everyone's going to leave or we're going to end up being homophobic forever and it'll be so embarrassing. Because, no, God's God, God's going to fix that. God's going to fix it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me. But before we go ahead and do that, we're just going to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in the book of First Nephi, chapters 1 through 7, and we are going to be discussing those. This is basically the beginning of the family of Lehi's journey into the wilderness and subsequent, or I guess, simultaneous leave from uh, Jerusalem. There's a lot to discuss here, and I don't know uh, if there's anything you want to leap on first. No, I want to hear what you have to say first. All right, sounds good. So um, the first thing that stood out to me as I read these chapters is that one of the standout themes of Lehi's family story is that of forfeiting privilege for one's own good. That is one of the first things I noticed. Now, the end of... um, the end of chapter one kind of sets up the whole story for first and second Nephi. And you could probably argue that it sets up the whole story for the Book of Mormon. And I just want to read that real quick so you can understand what I'm uh, what I'm saying here. This is verse 20, the last verse of uh, the Book of Mormon. So Nephi just got finished telling us that folks were trying to kill his father for his prophecies and uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But he goes on to say in the second half of verse 20, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. Now, without going into too much detail, we're going to see the Lord deliver Lehi's family from oppression, from certain death and destruction, from hunger, from fatigue, all as a result of the faith that they exercise in God. And later we're going to see people be delivered from slavery at least twice. We're going to see teenage soldiers preserved despite long odds. And we're going to see entire nations uh, delivered from their sins and converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the this last verse of First Nephi chapter 1 seems to set up what all is going to be possible uh, if people simply exercise faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, like I said, uh, the most standout theme to me is that of forfeiting privilege for your own good. And we're going to see that in the disparate responses to hardship, particularly between uh, Nephi and Laman and Lemuel. So we learn about those responses and we learn what some of the causes of them are. For example, in chapter two, we learn that Lehi is commanded to take his family out of Jerusalem and then flee into the wilderness, leaving behind their land and their property. Laman and Lemuel are understandably upset, and they complain against their father, even going so far as to call him crazy. Nephi, on the other hand, has a totally different response in verse 16. 
reads, quote, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, being exceedingly young, nevertheless being large in stature, weird flex, but okay, and also having great desires to know of the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me and did soften my heart that I did believe all the words which had been spoken unto my father. Wherefore, I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers, close quote. Now, Derek, something that I never noticed before that I did notice in this, uh, in this verse, this, this read-through, is that Nephi points out that his heart was softened. Now, like, what does it tell us exactly that Nephi's heart was softened or that it needed to be softened? D- like, does that, does that mean anything to you personally? It probably means that he had at least some questions or concerns yeah. that prompted him to go to the Lord and say, right. well, why, why do we really need to go out into the wilderness? Do we really need to flee? Do I, right. do I have to do this? And I think in some ways Nephi is validating the concerns that he never apparently mentioned yet in this right. narrative. Right. And so I think that's, that is significant. That is significant. Like he's letting us know this is hard for me too. Like a lot of people like to paint Laman and Lemuel as these uh, overly pessimistic bad guys whose, you know, reactions to this hardship isn't reasonable at all. But like this kind of clues us into the fact that perhaps Nephi felt the same way too. You know what I'm saying? Like Nephi's Nephi's 14 at this time. You know, try telling a 14 year old who grew up in comfort and wealth that he needs to leave his house, his stuff, and everyone he knows behind. Like this couldn't have been easy for him. Yet he goes along with it. And we're going to see the difference between those willing to forfeit comfort for the sake of the Lord and those who won't throughout the entire uh, First and Second Nephi narrative. So I, I, I just wanted to point out that while Laman and Lemuel did have reasonable responses to what was happening to them, because it's kind of a big deal to just up and lose all your co- comforts and privileges for the sake of obeying your father, obeying the Lord, you know, it, it says a lot that Nephi's heart did need to be softened. It says a lot that perhaps he was struggling in the same ways that Laman and Lemuel were, but he did have the courage and he did have the wisdom to go to the Lord in prayer and therefore get his heart softened and be able to have all the right answers and all the right responses to trial moving forward. And it's about to get a lot worse for them too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, one more thing that I think we can really learn from uh you know, this narrative and others like it that we're going to see throughout the book of uh, Nephi is that, um, and this is a lesson I learned relatively young, but I feel like people, particularly in privileged classes, have not really learned the lesson that just because you work hard or just because you grow up a certain way doesn't mean that you're entitled to comfort or an easy life or to success. Like a lot of folks, and I like went to college with a lot of these people, people who got degrees or advanced degrees And they were just all kinds of upset that they were not able to find a job or all kinds of upset that they weren't able to have the success that they were, quote unquote, promised while they were in college. But I feel like all kinds of groups on the margins are aware of that. Like you go to parts of Africa or parts of middle America or parts of um, black America, you'll find that there's all kinds of people who know that simply working hard does not entitle you to success and does not entitle you to comfort. And I feel like the Book of Mormon teaching us that lesson pretty much up front is one of the most powerful ones that we can take from it. 
uh, further that just because we work hard, just because we are successful, just because we follow the commandments of God doesn't mean that we're going to experience success and doesn't mean that we're going to be happy all the time. But the Lord does promise us peace. He does promise us that if we know um, the right things to do, that even though life isn't going to be easy for us, we can at least be at peace. And we're going to see this narrative throughout the Book of Mormon as well. The Lord doesn't promise uh, the obedient uh, that their lives are going to be easy all the time. Sometimes he just tells them that I will bring you peace or that I will make your burdens lighter, but I'm not going to remove them from you. From you. So um, that's just one more lesson I wanted to highlight briefly is the, uh, is the fact that simply obeying God's commandments or simply being willing to be in the right position or work hard that is not going to entitle us to a life of comfort, ease, and uh, and success. Any any thoughts about that before I move on? Yeah, I no, I no, I just want to hear more from you. All right, going to do next. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead to chapter seven. I know you wanted to talk about some of these uh, more, some of these middle chapters, but. Uh, at, by this point, Laman and Lemuel have seen an angel. They have received spiritual witnesses. They've experienced a lot during their sojourn in the wilderness so far. They tried to kill Nephi once even, and that's actually what uh, brought about the whole appearance of an angel to Laman and Lemuel. Mm-hmm. But in chapter 7, they're back on their BS. We, we see a great use of anaphora in verses uh, 10 through 12, where Nephi, in essence, exhorts his brethren to repentance after kind of alluding to their awfulness noting that they've forgotten the blessings thus far i'm just going to uh, read some of that real quick this is again first nephi 7 verses 10 through 12 uh, this is while uh, laman and lemuel are rebelling in addition to uh, some of the daughters and sons of ishmael whom they have retrieved from jerusalem to join them on this journey so nephi is exhorting them saying how is it that ye have forgotten that ye have seen an angel of the lord yea and how is it that ye have forgotten what great things the Lord hath done for us in delivering us out of the hands of Laban, and also that we should obtain the record. Yea, and how is it that ye have forgotten that the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for the children of men, if it so be that they exercise faith in him? Wherefore, let us be faithful to him. So in this particular group of verses, Nephi seems to highlight that one of the reasons we regularly rebel against the Lord is that we forget about him we forget about our divine identity we forget about what he's done for us it's, it's been said that the most important word in the book of mormon is remember and we'll probably and we're more than likely going to return to that theme when we start discussing the book of helaman chapter five but uh, that seems to be one of the biggest things that nephi is alluding to here is that a big cause of people forgetting god a big cause of people rebelling against him is simply forgetting what he's capable of, forgetting what he's done for them, forgetting what his place in our lives is, and forgetting what our identity as children of God means ultimately in our during our sojourn in mortality. And I believe that is one of the reasons it was so important that they returned to Jerusalem to return the records of their to retrieve the records of their people was to help them remember what the Lord has done for them. Uh, once we talk about chapter four, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the importance of scriptures and. Um, the importance of keeping records. It's actually one of the reasons I believe so strongly in journaling. I know that my testimony has been saved many a time by being able to read my journal, especially the mission entries that I still have. Um, Simply feeling down about where my life is or about some of the trials that I experience have never been sufficient to dissuade me from following the path of discipleship because I've been able to remember 
what the Lord has done for me and remember my place in this journey that we call mortality as a child of God. I think that's all I want to share. If there's time, I there is something I want to share from First Nephi 2.20, but it's a little bit of a stretch, so I'm going to reserve oh, it. Oh, okay. Well, one of the things that, that this journaling reminds me of is we have to take into account the the literary style and nature of this this text okay so unlike a lot of the bible which you have really sort of a third person omniscient narrator who really just lays everything out is not part of the action but just even knows people's internal thoughts and motivations right here you don't have that you have someone who's writing with a bias because they were there they only know what they saw and heard Uh and and they and Nephi obviously has a vested interest in bringing people to faith, and part of that is he has a vested interest in making himself the sort of the good character, the one to emulate as an example. And he he's tra- he does this with his brothers, right? Uh-huh. He wants to be an example of faith for his brothers and then for us. So we let's talk about the fruits of of reading it this way, because then you get to to notice some very interesting things i had a professor once who said that the way to write a good character or to look at literature and see where is there's a well-rounded character is if it's written in such a way that you have to decide if that character is good or bad disney characters do not fall into that you know they specify for you with all of their conventions who the villain is and who the good person is you just Mm -hmm. know that based on like even what the music is doing when they come out uh, on you know right but a good example of a good character is Hamlet because I have wrestled for years and years whether he's good or he's bad because he's caught in a funny spot but there's a lot of complexity a lot of difficulty there's a lot of gray areas uh, like how he treats Ophelia is awful but then he's I have sympathies for him in terms of what's been done to him by his Uncle Claudius. There's just a, a big mess, and I actually have to do some work to decide, like, am I on his side or not? Right. And that's a really good character. Now, Nephi tries to write so that we think he's the good guy, but there's some some seams and some gaps and some cracks in there that when you look at and realize that he's narrating this himself, and you go back and sort of read through that, it's kind of like reading a person's dating profile online and knowing that they're biased in 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 a very particular direction you can kind of scale that back and realize oh actually here's what's going on just based on what they include what they leave out things like that Uh for example he leaves out the troubles he had and then says oh but my heart was softened and he put that in because it makes him look good so I think there's a there's a gap or a seam there that you noticed, and I think it's important to point that out. One of the biggest seams. I don't know, man. Like, what? He, he, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> I don't want to know. I, I don't think it's so much important that he tells us what exactly he wrestled with because he kind of already does that. You know, it's probably the same stuff that Lemon and Lemuel wrestled with. Like at this. Yes, point, but he didn't say he joined in. He didn't say he joined in, but the important part is that he came out of it on the right side you know what right, i'm saying right and you know he may but he did say also that he did not rebel well anyway so what i want to get to is the slaying of laban because all right the slaying of laban i think most latter-day saints read that quite uncritically along with nephi and say well it must have been justified 
And but there's part of me that really wrestles with that and thinks that if I had been in that situation, I wouldn't have killed Laban. Okay. And wrestling with that is is kind of difficult. I don't know. Have you ever felt that way? Like, or have you always just assumed he did the right thing? Most of the time. Well, I'm not going to say I assumed he did the right thing, but I did have a little bit of a wrestle with it, but I did ultimately conclude that killing Laban was necessary, you know, because what might have happened if he didn't kill Laban? Like we, I mean, he kind of goes through what the spirit of the Lord is talking him through and why he needs to kill Laban and what further might happen if he doesn't do it. You know what I'm saying? So I don't really have an issue with, Nephi killing Laban just be simply because it seemed to be necessary. Like also just, I, I just don't think a case against him killing Laban or saying that it might not, might not have been the right thing to do is necessarily merited here. When you consider how often the Lord seem or sorry, God seems to change his mind about when it's okay to kill and when it's not okay to kill. Like, Sometimes he says, thou shalt not kill. Other times he says, thou shalt utterly destroy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Yes, but even those things are mediated by human fingerprints, right? Yes, there's context there. And that's the primary thing I'm saying here is there's context here that makes me less critical of Nephi's ultimate decision to kill Laban. And I'm anxious to hear what you well, think. Well, my point is we, what, we've only got Nephi's side of the story. So, of course, he's going to say, frame it as best as he can in a in a way that justifies it and i like what grant hardy points out the there's a major gap or scene here in the narrative uh-huh because it so happens that when nephi comes back to his father and mother one thing that nephi is going to do everything he can he first of all nephi is very interested in um his father's reaction like the very first words in of the teenage nephi are the ones in in three seven, where he tells to his father, "I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded," uh-huh. and then he records in verse eight, "And it came to pass that when my father had heard these words, he was exceedingly glad." And so he's he's very interested in documenting his father's sort of justification of of him. Uh huh. What what really should happen is Nephi comes back with the plates. And says, "Here's what I did. Mm-hmm. I killed Laban, and then we get to see his father's reaction. Uh-huh. And then, then the father would say, Yes, you killed Laban. That was good. Mm-hmm. But we actually don't have that, right? And it's and it's the lack of it there is actually more sort of suspicious. And and Grant Hardy points this out is that that he does everything he can to make sure that we don't even notice that seam." And part of what, what's behind this is if his father had some type of affirming comment about killing Laban, mm-hmm. Nephi probably probably had every motive to include it. Right. And so so I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering if when he got back, because at the time he thought the spirit was compelling him but but maybe when he gets back, he like wrestled with that, or the or the or his father Lehi wrestled with it in some way, and and there must be some discomfort. There's some tension in the text around it, right? And I'm just wondering about that. Like, what does that what does that mean, and how do we interpret that, and and how do we wrestle with that? Because here's what I would have done if I were Nephi. Now you can you can just 
tell me I'm wrong because maybe I'm wrong. But here's what we'll I would see. have done <laughs> is if if the spirit said to me, Derek, go and slay Laban. Here's what I would have said is I would have actually used my words from uh, from you know First Nephi three seven that the Lord giveth no commandments unto the children of men save he shall prepare a way for them that they may accomplish the thing which he commandeth them. And I would have said to the Lord, to the Lord's face, you commanded me not to murder. Now you got to find a way for me to keep the commandment not to murder. And then God, you got to find a way to, to, to take responsibility for either Laban's death or some other way for me to get the plates and flee so that I can keep the commandment not to murder. Mm -hmm. Because here you've got Laban. It's it's not actually a fair fight. It's not like they attacked and they fought and then and, and then it was self defense. He was drunk and incapacitated on the ground. Mm -hmm. And Nephi comes up and, and beheads him. Mm -hmm. Now he doesn't want to behead him. He doesn't plan that. He doesn't even bring a weapon. So I'm not saying he's like a murderer. He had any murderous intent uh -huh. until and that's part of his narrative. He's like, No, I didn't even want to kill him. Right. He's protesting it so hard so we, we know that that that's uh, what's going on. Yeah. And I want to just bring in the the legal materials from Exodus 21 around killing, mm -hmm. because there's a there's a provision there that says if you kill someone, then then you should be killed. But if it's um, not premeditated, that you don't lie in wait, and the Lord delivers him into your hand, and you kill him, then you're allowed to flee to a place of refuge which is uh, in Numbers 35, you've got the cities of refuge that are, are reserved for people who have committed manslaughter mm -hmm. or, or some other type of uh, killing that doesn't qualify as full murder. And it's also very similar to what uh, Moses did in, in Exodus chapter 2 when he killed the Egyptian. He fleed to Midian. Mm -hmm. so, that there, so there's some of this going on. He's trying to justify... Because the text does say that the Spirit said um, that I have delivered Laban into your hands. Yeah. But I, I'm still wrestling with why did God make Laban kill him? I'm I mean, sorry. Why, I mean, why did why did God make Levi kill Laban when God could have killed Laban just by like zapping him or something? Right. I feel like that's not in the econ I feel like that's never been in the economy of Christ or God to do things that his human servants could have done. Like throughout Yes, but but my point is if I were in Nephi's position, I would have argued to God saying, I'm not going to kill. This is It seems like Nephi's doing the same thing though, is arguing against the voice he's Yeah, hearing. but I would have argued even more and said, uh -huh. Look, if you're commanding me to get the plates and you're also commanding me to not not kill, uh -huh. then you're going to find a way for me to keep both of those commandments because I will go and do because the Lord does not give any commandments without preparing a way. So prepare the way. Uh -huh. That would have been my attitude. And I would have done that same thing if uh, I were Abraham and told to sacrifice my son Isaac. I would have mm -hmm. fought back. Um, now, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe I'm faithless. Maybe I'm faithful. I don't know. <laughs> You can go ahead and tell me, Derek, you're unfaithful. I'm not going to say it. Not in, not, in the, uh, not in the context of Abraham anyway, because I would have fought that too if I was in Abraham's position. I definitely would have fought that one. This one, I'm simply less apt to fight simply because if I'm in a position 
where someone powerful has been delivered into my hands and I know that their living could actually impede my life, impede the future of a whole nation or impede anything mm-hmm. else that killing them would not other that anything short of killing them wouldn't solve then in that situation I still would have killed Layden like and I would not have felt like a murderer would it have been hard yes because I've never killed anybody before but I probably still would have done it like the the closest thing I can think of is um you know I know a couple of women who have been in situations of domestic abuse and sometimes they might pour some hot grits on their husbands while they're sleeping. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't have a problem with that. Even if that is premeditated, like I feel like there are some necessary evils we got to engage in just for the sake of being able to get us out of a dangerous situation and preserve the existence of our posterity or anybody else. Sometimes people got to catch bodies in order to save their own lives or to save the lives of many. And I feel like that's what Nephi was doing here which is why I feel like the Lord commanded him to kill Laban and why ultimately Nephi was able to rationalize it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. But but my point is there is a tension here in the text because oh, yeah, we don't definitely. have a resolution. Definitely. We don't have any later like affirmations in mm-hmm. the narrative from, from, from Lehi, which is almost what you're expecting. Like it, and I'm still very uncomfortable with it. And I'm not saying... So what I'm saying is that that Nephi really isn't as Disney-fied as he almost makes us want to look. Uh-huh. And he is in some sense a well-rounded character because there are these um these tensions that we we see that well maybe he isn't all good and maybe uh-huh. he isn't all perfect and right. maybe he doesn't fully understand. Well, he, okay, let me just tell you what's behind this. Uh-huh. Okay? There are people in this church that have the same confidence. Okay. So so um so Nephi was absolutely confident that the spirit told him to hurt Laban. There are some people in this church that are absolutely confident that the spirit told them to hurt gay people and mistreat us. Right. And they know that that's the Lord's will. And it's not the Lord's will. Uh-huh. They but I they sincerely believe it. Mm-hmm. They're not making it up. They really think the Lord wants us to hurt gay people. Uh-huh. And that's the Lord's will. And that's kind of what I'm up against is we should have some humility and patience around being so confident that the Lord wants us to kill someone or the Lord wants to make a make something unbearable or unlivable for someone. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Because Nephi didn't consu- didn't even consult with anyone else. Like, hey, is this actually would the voice of God tell me to kill someone? Uh-huh. He does it on his own. Um, there's no checks and balances. How do we know that? Uh, like, ha- I mean, obviously the, the narrative goes on that that he's vindicated in the effects in terms of now now his people on the plates. Yeah. But ha- but it's but you see what I'm wrestling with. Yeah, I see that. There's some larger questions that we can't oversimplify and say, well, because I don't want to set a precedent. Well, of, of if God tells you to do something and you really think it's God and the voice can tell you to go kill someone, you do it. I mean, like that's not the way I want uh, people who learn from me to do their theology. Let me uh-huh. just put it that way. But on the other hand, I know some LGBT people in the church who use this text the exact opposite way because they put themselves in the position of Nephi and say, well, the Lord told me uh, to take a husband. Yeah. Or, uh, or or a woman will say, the Lord told me to take a wife. And even mm-hmm. though it appears to vi- violate this other commandment, the the spirit telling me directly 
trumps all that. Right. And so they've used it that way. Uh-huh. Right? I, I think just, and I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I think there's something beautiful in the wrestle here. Certainly. Something beautiful in the wrestle that we don't need to resolve it, and we're not going to right here, but I just uh-huh. think there's something that that just wrestling with the text will make us stronger mm-hmm. because then we'll think through this. Mm. What do you think about all this? Well, it Do you think I'm unfaithful and bad? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. It just brings up, uh, like you're right, there's something beautiful about the wrestle, but also something confounding about the wrestle in that if somebody in that situation who's LGBTQ and wants to take a wife or a husband and while the commandments, quote unquote, of the church say that they should not do that, that I'm not in a position to judge that. You know, just like I'm not really in a position to judge Nephi and I may not even be in a position to judge the homophobe who is trying to deny people personhood based on some personal revelation that they receive. I feel like there's something, I feel like there's a missing piece there because I don't want to say that I should respect somebody else's personal revelation to disregard my humanity as much as I should respect Nephi's. I feel like there's a missing piece there, but I think there's a beauty in that wrestle as well in the kind of confounding of an ability to thoroughly analyze this to the point where I can say what Nephi did was right or wrong or where I can say what somebody's personal revelation receives is right or wrong. I don't know, man. And that gets into some larger issues around sort of the different narrative styles and the, even the different theologies of the authors in the Book of Mormon because uh-huh. they're written by different people. Right. And Nephi is very clear that God will not command you to do something without preparing a way. Uh-huh. which seems to imply that God will never give you two conflicting commandments because then there's no way of doing them both, right? Uh-huh. However, when we look at the theology that Mormon includes in Mosiah in King Benjamin's sermon by including that, you've got Mosiah 4.27 that says, it is not requisite that any man should run faster than he has strength. So if you can't do something, if you really can't do something, you're not required to do it. Uh-huh. And and then it goes back into our temple theology of Adam having two conflicting commandments, one to be fruitful and multiply with his wife versus um, eating, not partaking of the fruit. He's after, especially after Eve has already partaken of the fruit and she's now on her way out, he's uh-huh. stuck because he th- either he will be alone and not be able to fulfill one commandment or he will eat the fruit and violate another commandment like where's the where's nephi with his oh the lord will prepare a way right uh-huh. so i think there's room for like different com- reading strategies here right and i and very much i resonate kind of with mosiah here um mosiah 427 and to say look there's 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 some problems here and if i'm not able to do something then i'm not able to do it and the lord isn't going to require something of me that's impossible for me to do uh-huh and I, and I think just having multiple voices in the text and having human fingerprints all over the text actually is a good thing because then it makes it real to us who are in the same thing. And our journals may become, in some sense, scriptures of the next generation. Certainly. Certainly. So that's all I have to say about Nephi. Other than I just wanted to to emphasize that, yes, these are refugees, both uh, they're fleeing Jerusalem because Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Uh, 
which actually is very interesting because you're saying, well, the Lord doesn't work that way to just smite people. Well, he t- he he really does in uh-huh. in that in that narrative. Is like he's just going to kill a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem. He's going to kill people in the flood. Like if how God, though? how though? Well, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that if God can get somebody else to do it then that's the way he operates. Okay. Otherwise, he'll, yeah, he'll step in with a natural disaster or two to make things happen. You know what I'm saying? Right. But, well, anyway, so. Anyway. Let's go back to the, um, uh, um, what was it? Oh, yeah. Refugee thing. Yeah. So, so you've got refugees and after, especially after they kill Laban, uh-huh. Or after Nephi kills Laban, they really have no way of going back to Jerusalem. That has sealed the deal. There's no way that they can go back. Yeah, murder um, now, Nephi. Wanted and man. So they have to, Get they out have of Jerusalem. to flee. And so that should give us um, a very good way of grafting on the story of refugees today to our stories mm-hmm. um, and the sacred stories of, of, of like they have to flee so that they can, they and their families can survive. How can we judge people? who do the same thing today when we would do the same thing and when Nephi and Lehi did the same thing. Right. Especially us as members of the church. We should know better than most how to respond to that situation and what it's like to be in that situation. Like, not only our spiritual ancestors, not only the pioneers, but, you know, also Lehi's family. Our sacred text includes stories of people who are put in situations that are doing what we would have done if the circumstances had you know, demanded such, just like it's doing with uh, Lehi's family. You know, and here's the other thing. I, I could have said part of what part of the reason here that Lehi, that um, Nephi is commanded to kill Laban is to get these brass plates and right. preserve them. And and uh, so that so that a, an entire continent will have God's word to me. I love that because that shows the supreme importance of God's word. Uh-huh. However, I could have also said um, to God. If I were Nephi and and God says go kill Laban and get the plates, I say, well, why don't you just miracle me an extra copy of those plates? Mm-hmm. You can do that. <laughs> like there's there's times where God is like there there could have been another way, right? Where did where where does all this God will prepare a way for you to keep the commandments? Where did why didn't why didn't he deploy that strategically here? And because I, I, I like I as a queer person I I say that it takes faith to sort of push back against God or at uh-huh. least push back against the God that we've been presented. Right. Right. Um, and we've talked about this a number of times before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that actually shows faith in God rather than rebellion in God. Because what you're saying is I'm holding you accountable to your character. Oh Lord, mm-hmm. you have promised this. You have made me this way. I am your offspring. Uh-huh. There's like constraints on how you can treat me. There's constraints on, on what, uh, and there's obligations that you have. I'm going to hold you up to what you are saying your character is, how uh-huh. you love us. And, and I think that actually is faithful because it's saying, I know beyond any doubt what the Lord's character is so much that I can hold God accountable to that. Uh-huh. So that's probably all I should say about First Nephi. Cool, man. For, to, for this week. Cool. There's going to be a lot more to say. Like, I mean, we know what's coming next, so... We're gonna, I'm sure we're going to have a lot more fun discussing uh, Lehi's family's journey as we move into the next chapters of the Book of Mormon. That's uh, all you want to say in Chapter 4 or all you want to say in the— uh, I think all I want to say for the whole 
Okay, that's cool, Chap- man. Chapter seven. And we've said a lot. There's a there's a lot of things to uh, parse and discuss throughout these first chapters of Book of Mormon, and uh, I got a I got a lot of things to uh, think about. I never considered wrestling with uh, Nephi four the way that uh, that you have put the wrestle before us. So thanks for sharing that with me and obviously our our listeners. Well, I just want to say. I would love to wrestle with Nephi because he was of large stature. Man. <laughs> uh, like, like, have you seen those paintings? Like, yeah, I've he's seen buff those pa- and shirtless. Yes. He's also 14. That can't be an accurate oh. representation of what like, I don't well, believe it. Well, not that then, but. Because that artist drew everybody like that. Did you see how he drew Moroni? Like, Moroni's like 80 years old, and the dude looks like Ric Flair. It's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. Anyway. We, we discussion for another day about Book of Mormon art and toxic masculinity. Let's go ahead. Speaking of toxic masculinity, move on to the prayer roll. Uh, before we do, though, this is a good. T- Where's my spot? This is a good time to also let you guys know about another podcast in the uh, Dialogue Podcast Network called the Gospel Tangents Podcast, which explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. We talk to witnesses of history. BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets and presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. That is the Gospel Tangents podcast, available on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So, moving on to the prayer roll, I would like to discuss the 22 Convention, a.k.a. the world's ultimate event for women by men. Have you heard about this, Derek? I have. I thought it was like a satire at first. So did I. So did I. That's how poorly it's constructed. That's how bad the advertising is. That's how bad the description is. Like it is awful. It is absolutely awful. But it is it is a hundred percent real and it's a convention catered to natural born women, quote unquote. It has a tagline that reads, Make women great again with the promise of, quote, dramatically improving women's lives and femininity while simultaneously calling feminism the enemy. Um, so I, I went to this webpage. I, I read the little promo, or I watched the promo for the 21 convention, which this is a spinoff of, which is pretty much the 22 convention, but for men, teaching them how to be patriarchs and manly men and all that other nonsense. Oops, I didn't do that right. You did not do that right, Derek. <laughs> but you would be somehow the perfect candidate for this 21 convention. So in other words, their promo is not promo. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Why, Derek? <laughs> not a single episode. Like, I'm going to one day at the end of the at the end of this year, I'm putting together a supercut of all your gay jokes. Yay. A supercut. It's going mean, to be like yay. <laughs> awful. Anyway, Back to the 22 convention. The first thing I want to discuss is <laughs> these speakers. Um, they're all men. And one would think that if you're going to have a convention about creating better women, you would have at least at least some women scheduled to speak. But they don't have any. Not a single woman out of the roughly 15 speakers scheduled to speak are women. Now, the second thing and the most disturbing thing about this to me is, are you familiar with the manosphere? No. Okay. I just I learned about this a while ago because my ex brother in law was a part of this community and apparently this community is made up of 
men's rights activists, alt-right trolls, and conspiracy theorists. And my ex-brother-in-law was all of these guys. He was an alt-right troll. He was a conspiracy theorist. Mm-hmm. He believed in Bigfoot, you know, for goodness sakes, and all this other mess. But anyway. You know, all these men, right, yes. and I have something in common. We've Uh-oh. never pleased a woman. There it is. There it is. <laughs> and it's I'm, true. Like, I don't know what they're doing with their lives or or what's wrong with them, but there's just no way that they can have a healthy dude, relationship with women. You ain't lying, man. Like, I'm getting s- – the energy I'm getting from the speakers at this convention says, I want to abolish women's suffrage, and I think I should be able to sleep with underage girls. That is the kind of energy I'm getting from yeah. these men. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what happens. That's actually what happens in these online communities where these men, like, proliferate. I don't know if I'm using that word right, but I'm sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Like, the kinds of topics they discuss is how they're going to take away women's rights to vote and how they're going to legalize sleeping with underage girls. Like, those are legitimate threads they have in these in these spaces in the manosphere. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Um Final thing about these speakers is I recognize like three or four of them immediately because of what they're known for. Uh, One of them is a noted conspiracy theorist and men's rights activist who regularly appears on uh, Infowars, that Alex Jones show that got canceled. And uh, another is this guy named uh, Stefan Molyneux, who is uh, a noted white nationalist and racial realist, which is just a fancy way of saying phrenology or scientific racism. I didn't know these guys still existed, but apparently there's still people that believe in the pseudoscience of racial realism. And he's speaking at this conference. So, like, I don't know. Every single, like, I, I think it says enough that they, they're selling this merchandise that says Make Women Great Again, styled after the Make American Great Again hats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that basically tells you everything you need to know about these gentlemen who are conducting this conference. Now, my question, is this like a quote, Christian conference? Is it like people who are who are like taking Paul's you know the the words attributed to Paul about women and like saying, "Well, women need to be in their place." Is this like su- claiming to be grounded in Christianity, or is it claiming to be grounded in like alt right, secular, whatevers? From what I can see on the web page, I, d- I didn't see any scriptures quoted, oh. but there are. But I do know that a lot of these men do happen to believe in God or whatever. Uh, but I didn't see any of that quoted on this little splash page that introduces mm-hmm. the convention as well as the subject matter, which is the second thing I want to point to. The okay, like the anti-feminine, anti-motherhood propaganda that is feminism, the body positivity lie, and the supposedly decades-long attack on positive masculinity and femininity, which has supposedly taken a toll on love and dating, seems to be the overarching complaint and goal of this convention to combat you know so forget about global warming climate change uh environmental crises power hungry men making terrible decisions world hunger and all this other mess that actually is going on in the world we're going to blame anti-feminist we're going to blame feminist propaganda and anti-male propaganda for the problems we have in the world today with regard to the relationships between the male and female species, not the disparate treatment that we give women in the workplace, not the disparate treatment we give women in all walks of life, not the fact that women actually have to fear for their lives if they walk after dark past 9 p.m., whatever the case may be. It is 
anti-feminist it is feminist propaganda and it is anti-male propaganda that is proliferating all these problems between men and women in dating and marriage and all this other mess so what the world really needs today is an almost all-white panel of entitled men explaining why the true calling of women needs to be to embrace their femininity and heed their one true calling of being perfect wives and mothers and having as many children as possible which is another one of the little panels they're having at this convention how to have all the babies you want before you're 30 some like that i don't know but for the this is another quote from their site here for the past several hundred thousand years of human life on this planet masculine men have preferred feminine women in all areas of life from the kitchen to the bedroom dating to relationships marriage family and beyond close quote fam like none of those have anything to do with a woman's existence independent of a man like it's 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 clear that the whole point of this convention is not is not to make great women but to make women amenable to patriarchy like that's the whole point of this like there's another line on this uh on this uh, site that says men prefer debt-free virgins without tattoos and i'm just like like if you just want to say that Insecure men prefer insecure women like just outright say that but this is all just a coded way of men saying that we want to teach you how to be docile. We want to teach you how to be pleasing to men and this is going to fix all of our problems right. in the Western world. I mean in a sense this is this is all about the interests and needs of the men. Correct. And um, yeah I just. It doesn't make, and it's just a lie to to say that they're making women great again. What? Yeah, you've just said it so well. Like when <laughs> it's, you can see right through it and realize. But here's the thing: is I don't think straight men, if they really loved the women in their life, would be happy. Do if those women aren't able to be fully themselves. Speak on it, yes, sir. Right? If yes. I loved a woman, which I, I mean, not in that way. Not in that way. Yes. I would want her. To have every opportunity that I have, I would want her to just be herself and be authentic and be yes. be f- free and and not be constrained by roles or or discrimination or any of that. Right, right. I mean, there there is a homoph- there is a, a a sexism problem in the gay men world because certainly you certainly. know there's like they may not see women, but if you love a woman and you want the best for her, I just don't understand how these men who are presumably straight and actually love and care. What it is, they don't love and care about a woman. They have a woman as an object in their life uh-huh. that's useful to them. Uh-huh. And that's what they're trying to maintain. Correct. And so it's not about their love for women. It's about their love of what women will do for them. Right. Like the and whole thing, the whole thing is so, gosh. My favorite X-Man Storm or Roro Monroe my favorite X-Men, she put it perfectly. Like, this whole thing is so pathetic that it's almost quaint. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. <laughs> and what these people don't get is that patriarchy hurts men, too. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, well, it's, like, bad for everyone. What I'm saying is it hurts men in particular ways, and, there sh- and theoretically men should not be invested in patriarchy because it hurts. It, it limits the roles and options right. for men. It right. limits... Um, their happiness for the women in their life and the and the freedoms right. that they have it limits your it just is it, it sets everyone up for for failure because right. so many of these right. stereotypes about women actually backfire 
to make things bad for men too. Like right. the idea that men should be the provider and the protector and the whatever, and women and should be are weak and should be stay home. That actually feeds into militarism and the draft and why men are sent off to wars. Uh, typically, poor men and and men of color are sent off to wars to fight for rich people and their corporations. That is because of patriarchy. Yep. And patriarchy doesn't help all men the same way. It helps rich, white, straight men, especially. Um, And I think if if the average man on the street knew what was going on, they would be feminist. Mm -hmm. And they don't even like define that word properly but yeah definitely definitely a different conversation cherry on top did you see how much this convention costs no two thousand dollars for two thousand dollars ladies can go to listen to a panel of the comment section of a 4chan thread to tell them how to accommodate their own insecurity as opposed to putting that money and time to better use, like constructing your own slide made of a cheese grater and rolling down it bare naked all weekend like Ugh, like the entitlement, the patriarchy, the caucasity of it all. Like it's a whole freaking mess. That's right? why it's like if some, if some, some here, here's the thing. If the onion writers tried to write a satire as good as this, they wouldn't be able to, <laughs> they couldn't do it. Like this is, this, this is, this is so unrealistic that you the satire writers wouldn't even think to 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 frame it exactly the way that it's panning out mm-hmm. that's how sad it is that's how sad it is like you have to write not the onion in order to like no yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is not the onion guys this is really not the onion but <laughs> i what i'm hoping cuz you know this is the first time they're doing this event what i'm really hoping is that it ends up like the straight pride parade and like two people show up <laughs> that's, that's what i'm hoping happens i don't know even women that subscribe to this stuff, who's going to spend $2,000 to just listen to a bunch of... I mean, I don't know. I don't know people like that. So I've been wrong before, but that's what I'm hoping happens is that like two people show up and those two people are journalists. Like Both of them are women who are paid by publications yeah. to see exactly how ridiculous this thing was going to be. So pray for the 22 convention and their organizers that you know if they can't see the errors of their way, that they're at least going to be receive some kind of awakening that <laughs> nobody asked for or needs. Oh, no. Nobody. Well, maybe they will see the light. The truth will make you free. Anyway. Nope, I don't. Who knows? Anyway, Derek, you got a prayer roll? All right, cool. Okay, well, I'll see you. Ne- do we have any housekeeping? Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, briefly go over that real quick. Um you guys know we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We still don't have a Snapchat yet because we're old. We don't know how that stuff works. Um, but do follow us and all that other stuff. As you know, Derek and I, about a week or two ago, have released a special bonus episode titled Why We Believe, which is, in my opinion, one of the best introductions you could have to us and also one of the best introductions anybody could have to what it's like to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the margins. So if you know somebody who could use such a perspective, we definitely urge you to please share that episode with uh, those you care about, those anybody who could benefit from such a perspective, but especially those who sit on the margins and are looking to embrace Mormonism or le- looking to Yeah, and one thing to do is um, if you're one of our fans, 
send us a message saying like what you would like us to do a special bonus episode on and we can take some of these ideas into account and maybe the thing that you want us to talk about we'll talk about so uh, think what you would like to hear from us um, and what other people would like to hear from us and let us know All right, and I think that's Later. all the Bye. housekeeping we got for this week. So we'll see you guys next week.